as an Andrew, I always like to take this opportunity to point out that the first disciple to follow Jesus, to listen to his call, was a disciple named Andrew. And so if you hear nothing else from this sermon today, remember that Andrews are always, always good, faithful people. (laughs) Important to remember. One of the very best lessons that I learned when I started seminary took place on the the second or third day of classes at at Sewanee where I went to seminary. We had spent two weeks, uh, me and all of my classmates, going through all of the school's long orientation, learning all of the ins and outs of what it means to be a seminarian, all of us thinking about our future lives as priests, and we were excited to finally begin our classes, classes in Bible and music, classes in church history and ethics, church management and preaching. The important lesson that I learned came uh, in my very first uh, theology class, the, the professor, the theology professor, came into the room. She greeted all of us, all the new seminarians sitting there, and then she proceeded to tell us two things. She said, I've got good news for you today, and I've got even better news for you today. The good news is this, there is a God. And the even better news for you today is that none of you are Him. In fact, that was, the, that was the prayer that she challenged us to pray every day of our seminary careers while we were taking her classes and all of our other classes. God is God, and I am not. God is God, and I am not. I tell you that story because I think we've all met or seen or heard people who think that they are greater than they actually are. Some people who think that they might in fact be God or are very close to becoming God. I was reading an article on the New Yorker website recently about leaders, business, and political, and even religious leaders who think themselves better or wiser or more gifted than others, irrespective of reality and actual facts. Leaders who like to spend a lot of time talking about themselves, their greatness, and how they alone can make the world better. Do any of you know someone like this? And please don't point to your neighbor in the pew. Social psychologists actually have a a name for this this way of thinking. It's called the illusory superiority effect, the illusory superiority effect. And it's it's defined as a cognitive bias whereby individuals overestimate their own qualities and abilities relative to others. It's sometimes called uh, superiority bias or even the Lake Wobegon effect after the author Garrison Keillor's fictional town where all of the women are strong, all of the men are good-looking, and all of the children are above average. For a number of years, psychologists thought that this bias toward oneself could actually be good for a person as it could boost one's self-esteem. In the past several years, though, Many psychologists, not all, but many psychologists have come to the conclusion that individuals with these self-enhancement biases often have poor social skills and they are unable to maintain long-term relationships with others. And so they often exhibit antisocial behaviors that lack consideration or respect for the well-being of other people. So it's with all of that in mind that we look at the lessons appointed for this week. We find ourselves at the beginning of John the Evangelist Gospel account, where past that beautiful prologue where the writer talks about the eternal nature of the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. John writes so beautifully and poetically in that first chapter. We're past all of that, and we're hearing a, a bit of the testimony of John the Baptist, another John, that, that strange prophetic individual standing on the fringes of society, crying out for change. We're told right before our reading for today that, that John the Baptist has quite a following. He has men and women who are responding to his message of repentance and who are becoming his disciples, lots of them. We're told that the, the Jewish people, they're sending their priests to go down to the Jordan to check out what John is saying and to see if he is legitimate. The Pharisees, we're told right before this, and other religious leaders make their way to, their wa- to the waters, and they, they ask him to explain himself. What are you saying? Who are you? Why are you doing all of these strange things? Why are all of these people listening to you? Are you, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you one of the other prophets? Who who are you, man, they ask. And John responds by telling them, I am not the Messiah. I'm not him. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie the thongs of his sandals. I am not the Messiah, John says. And then we hear our reading for today. As as Jesus starts to walk toward John the Baptist, John begins to cry out, look, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, you see, doesn't seem to be exhibiting any of these characteristics of superiority bias. Yes, he has many followers. Yes, he has an exciting message. Yes, he is stirring people, but he's, he's not doing it to benefit himself in any way. He's not doing it to further his own name, his own brand. He's not trying to make any sort of profit off of this message. John is doing and saying these things because he trusts and believes that the only way to help others is not to claim messiahship or kingship for himself, but to be a servant, a servant who works on behalf of God and on behalf of God's people. He's a servant leader, and servant leadership is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the one who came to serve and not to be served. You and I have heard our rector, Luis, bemoan the fact that many officials in our government no longer refer to themselves as public servants, and I agree with him that that's that's a shame. When we elect and appoint leaders who think first not of the people they represent, but simply in defending their own name and inflating their own self-worth, then I, I think that we should be concerned about whether or not they actually care about making others great. Do those individuals actually care about making those who are struggling great? Do they care about the poor and the uninsured, the low-wage workers struggling to pay their bills, to buy food for their families, or do they simply care about making themselves great? You see, I want, I want public servants who care about others first. There was a story that came out a few years ago about the Episcopal Bishop of Atlanta, Rob Wright. And if you don't know Rob, uh, take some time when you go home today or this week and Google him, go to YouTube and listen to some of his sermons because I'm convinced that he is one of the best preachers not only in the Episcopal Church but in the church, right up there with uh, our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, and many of us have had the privilege to hear Michael uh, many times. Rob, like Bishop Curry, lives out what he preaches. A few years ago, on the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., Bishop Wright spent the day working with a sanitation crew in the city of Atlanta. Before dawn, uh, he met with a group of trash collectors as they were preparing to go out and begin their work, and he, 
He said this to him. This is, this is what he wrote that he said. He said that church and religion aren't just a Sunday thing. He said Jesus lived and worked every day among people whose lives were hard and who needed the presence of someone who cared about them. He said, I care about all of you. And then he put on one of those, those shiny yellow reflective vests. He put that on over his purple shirt and his collar, and he went out and spent the day hanging on the back of a garbage truck picking up the trash with all of those sanitation workers. And he's, he's spent the day since fighting for those workers, ensuring that they are paid a living wage, that they have health benefits. Bishop Wright cares about those hardworking people because Jesus cares about those hardworking people. Bishop Wright, like, like Dr. King before him, like Rosa Parks, like Julian Bond and Medgar Evers and John Lewis, and like John the Baptist long before any of those great prophets, he spends his life testifying to the light and making the love of Christ known to all people, but most especially to those who have been forgotten or overlooked. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, Dr. King wrote in 1963. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. I think our work as, as people of God is, is not only to point others to the one who is light and life, but it's also to be light and life for all of God's people. That's what the Epiphany season, this church season that we're in now, is all about God's light being made known, being manifested in all the world for all the world. The prophet Isaiah, in the first reading that we heard today, wrote, I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I will give you as a light to the nations, he said. God speaks to the prophet about a servant who will go to God's people and not only speak good news, but spend his life working to make that good news a reality. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. God's plan for the world requires action on our part. God's plan for the world requires that we be willing participants. God's plan for the world means that we don't get to spend all of our lives focused solely on ourselves and how to make ourselves richer or greater, but that we be the body of Christ, the hands, the feet of Christ, light in a dark world. God's plan requires that we set aside our own desires to be God and remember our place as servants, servants of God and servants of God's people. God is God, and I am not. Amen. 